Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say together, amen, church, amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat. Thank you for that, George. What George read just now, folks, was a 126-word sentence from the Apostle Paul. So, have any of you ever written a 126-word sentence? If you did, you for high school or college or whatever, you probably got counted off for writing a run-on sentence. But uh, Paul gets away with it. He's got apostolic privilege, you might say, to write run-on sentences. Hey, let's take our Bibles together and let's turn to the passage that was just read, Romans chapter 1. Welcome, Harvest Decatur. Glad to see all of you here today. We're ready to worship, ready to study God's Word. Just give me a thumbs up if you're ready to do that. Our series is entitled, Holy Unholy. And what we're looking at here in the book of Romans is how a holy God can take an unholy person, like you and me, into the holiness of God's presence and God not compromise his holiness one whit. That's what we're looking at in the book of Romans. And I'll say this too, I mean, there are many different um, backgrounds represented here at Harvest. Some of you got saved early in life. Some of you got saved later in life. Some of us, like myself, y'all have heard my story before, we learned very early on that we are holy, unholy without the Lord. So at age six, I was, let's say, uh, uh, painfully aware of my own sinfulness, and, and that's what led me to Christ. The gospel was preached, I got saved, age six, came to the Lord. Many of you have a similar story like that. Others of you, and I, I know many of your stories, you came to Christ later. You came to Christ like some of the people that we've been looking at, Martin Luther and Augustine, after, after you know, a myriad of fits and starts within your life. I gave you those two examples last week of people who came to Christ late in life, Martin Luther and Augustine. Let me give you an example of another person who came to Christ late in life, a well-known person. In the 1700s, there was a brilliant kid in England who was spiritually minded, spiritually minded from his youth. He went to Oxford. He was ordained a deacon in his church. And he became a professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He was also a fellow member with George Whitfield of a group called the Holy Club at Oxford, a club that dedicated itself to rigorous spiritual disciplines in the imitation of Christ. 
Well, this individual eventually went to America as a missionary to evangelize the unholy heathens. That whole missionary effort was a colossal failure. And this person returned to England a short time later depressed and broken because of his failures. And he had great fear about his eternal salvation. He wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? This man had grown up in the church. In fact, his dad was a pastor. He had been schooled in the Christian faith. He was sent to the New World as a missionary, but he was unsaved. He was unsaved. He had trusted in his own works and his own deeds for his salvation, and he knew that he was condemned before a holy God. But God in his mercy didn't leave that man in that wretched state. After he returned to England, he became convinced of his own unbelief. And on the evening of May 24, 1738, he wrote this in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change with God, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely war warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Isn't that good? Amen. Who are we talking about here? Do you know who we're talking about? This is the evangelist John Wesley. Some of you had that right. At 24 years old, after many years of supposedly following Christ, John Wesley got saved, and he would go on to live another six decades preaching the gospel, leading others to a similar conversion experience as his own. Arkin Hughes says this about Wesley's conversion. He says, John Wesley's warming was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Amazingly, until Aldersgate, John Wesley, a man who knew more theology and was more dedicated than most believers, did not know Christ or the saving power of the Holy Spirit. He was in the church, but he was condemned. Now that statement right there is terrifying to me as the pastor of Harvest Decatur. Because I wonder, out here, are there people in our church that even now are trusting in their deeds, trusting in their works, trusting in their own righteousness for their salvation instead of trusting in Christ? What are you going to do about that, Pastor Tony? I'm going to preach Romans. And we'll get this settled. That your salvation, church, is by faith in Christ, not in your works, Lest any man should boast, we believe in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. This is what we call the gospel. This is the gospel as Paul presents it in Romans. So go ahead and take your notes and write these down. I want to give you today four truths about the gospel from Romans 1, 1 through 7. One long sentence, Paul writes, four truths about the gospel. Here we go. Here's number one. Paul tells us that the gospel was promised by the prophets. The gospel was promised by the prophets. 
Paul says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's interesting that Paul starts out this, this letter by referring to himself as a servant. This word, this Greek word doulos is some believe better translated slave. Paul was a slave of Christ Jesus. I wore my doulos Iesus Christu shirt today to let you know that I likewise am a servant of Christ Jesus. You likewise are a servant of Christ Jesus. This is a designation that has profound humility. Should anyway, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. But also there's great honor in that. I belong to Christ. And this word doulos is probably derived from a Hebrew word and a Hebrew concept, Eved Adonai, a servant of the Lord, a phrase, a, a designation that was used for Moses and the prophets. Paul is not embarrassed at all to say, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. And I'm not embarrassed either to say that. Not only is he a slave, according, according to verse 1, he's also an apostle. He's a doulos of Christ Jesus. He's also an apostolos of Christ Jesus. Now, just for the record, one of those terms, doulos, apostolos, one of those terms is transferable to you, harvesticator. The other one is not. And I guess I've already tipped my hand as to which one you are and I am based on my shirt. You want a shirt like this? I'll get you one. We are doulos. We are servants of Christ Jesus. But let me just be clear about this. We are not apostles. Paul is using this term apostle as a technical term for the, for the few men that Jesus handpicked to authoritatively launch the church and write the scriptures and to teach the right doctrines, the doctrines that would eventually be codified and canonized as our scripture. Paul was an apostle, just like Peter, just like John, just like Matthew. We are not apostles, not in that way. So, and part of the reason Paul's starting this way, he's saying, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, just like you, church. But you know what? I'm also an apostle. I've been called to that task. So this is Paul's way of saying, listen up, church. I got authority from Jesus Christ to say this to you. So listen up, church in Rome. Listen up, church in Decatur. I have also been set apart for the gospel of God. And I think that's a reference to Paul's role as a gospel preaching witness to the Gentiles. Several, time, several times in Paul's life, even at his own conversion in Damascus, the Lord said, you will be my witness to the Gentiles. Not just the Gentiles, he witnessed the Jews as well. But the priority of Paul's apostolic ministry was to Gentiles, to people like the people in Rome who were gathered as the church. So this is, this is Paul. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And speaking of that gospel, Paul says that it was promised, verse 2, beforehand throughout, sorry, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Who promised it? Who's the he in verse 2? It's God, the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel was proclaimed, it was promised in the Old Testament. This, this book was not written in a vacuum. There's a, there's a promise that, that Paul sees being fulfilled. You know, last week I, 
I spent a little bit of time just sharing the gospel with you. I did, what, a 10-minute presentation and a, a little rants with some diagrams. And, you know, if I had another 20 or 30 minutes, I might unpack some more about how the Old Testament promised what happened with Christ and the coming of Christ. By the way, I challenged you last week. Remember I shared the gospel in 30 seconds too? Y'all remember that? I challenged you guys to work on that as well. How'd that go this week? Did you do it? Can you get it down to 30 seconds? A minute? Two minutes? I was talking to Don Miller last week and he was reinforcing how important this is to share the gospel succinctly and concisely and yet accurately. Keep working on that. If you got... 30 seconds, maybe you abbreviate this, but let's say you got 20 or 30 minutes to share the gospel or 7,000 plus words like Paul does in Romans, you might want to touch on some of the ways the Old Testament foreshadowed the gospel. The best place to start with that is Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God gave them what's called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel, the first gospel. God told the serpent in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who was the promised seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent? Church, do you know? Do you know? It's Jesus. Here's another promise from the prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Who is that branch? Who is that king, church? Isaiah 53, verse 5, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Who was pierced for your transgressions, church? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. And 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah promised this coming of Jesus. Promised, prophesied the coming of our Savior. Isaiah also promised that Jesus would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Micah promised that he would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel promised that he would be a divine son of man. Isaiah and Malachi both, both promised that Jesus would have a forerunner, who we find out later to be John the Baptist. And I, in Psalm 16, David prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And the promises go on and on and on and on from the Old Testament. Listen, listen, I want you to hear me on this. This introduction, if you want to call it that, to the book of Romans that Paul writes, these are not throwaway statements. What Paul says here about the, the promises, the gospel of God that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, the New Testament, like I said, wasn't written in a vacuum. These truths about Jesus were anticipated and recorded in the Old Testament Scriptures. Augustine says it this way, 1,600 years ago, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed the New Testament is the Old Testament 
revealed. And by the way, every single chapter in the book of Romans, every chapter in this book has at least one citation, quotation, allusion, or echo from the Old Testament. There are 189 citations, quotations, allusions, and echoes in the book of Romans. We're going to work through every one of them. And to that you might say, well, why should I care about that, Pastor Tony? I'm not Jewish. Well, neither was the church that Paul was writing to in Rome. They were predominantly Gentile, kind of like our church. And yet Paul's not afraid to quote the Old Testament and to use it to reinforce his arguments. If you love the Old Testament, you're going to love the book of Romans. So we see what Paul writes here. So go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Number one is that the gospel was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. The second thing that Paul is doing here is that he's telling us that the gospel was realized in the Son. Promises have to be realized. Promises have to be followed through with. If you promise your son or daughter that you're taking them to Culver's for ice cream, you better follow through with that. Am I right or am I right? Am I right, dads? And you know what? God's promises are different than human promises. They are certainties from God. God's promises, if he gives you a promise, you can be absolutely assured that God is going to follow through with that promise. And the promise of the gospel finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The promise of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. And speaking of Jesus Christ, notice, just look in verses 1 through 7 in your Bibles. Look how many times Paul refers to Jesus. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 6, you were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus Christ is important to Paul? Do you think that's an emphasis here with the gospel? And that doesn't even include the references to the Son in verse 3. In verse 5, Paul was all about Jesus Christ. In our day, Jesus Christ is used as a swear word when we hit our thumb with a hammer. That's not how Paul saw this name. This is the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow before the name of Jesus. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. He's the essence of the gospel. So, Paul says, verse 3, concerning his son. Remember, this is all one sentence in verses 1 through 7. So let me read a little bit of verse 1 and 2 and get a running start at verse 3. God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Got it? Who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, 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 this is good, church. Are y'all feeling this like I'm feeling it? This is not throwaway stuff. This is good stuff. This is good theology. 
The Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures is described by Paul as both God and man, as the son of David and the son of God. His deity and his humanity is confirmed in verses 3 and 4. Let's unpack this a little bit more. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, verse 3. Paul uses two very earthy terms here to describe Jesus' incarnation. He uses the word sperma, meaning seed. He was the seed of David. And also sarks, which means flesh. Paul is saying that Jesus was literally the flesh and blood of King David. He was not a phantom being. He was not a ghost that just kind of floated down to earth and pretended to suffer on the cross. He had real flesh and bones. He was incarnate. It, incarnate, it means, um, it means in flesh. Carne, if you're familiar with that word, Latin, Spanish. Jesus was in meat, if you want to say it that way. He came in the flesh. He really did bleed and, and die. And if you're unsure about that, then you can look at Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 2. Luke goes to great lengths to show you that Mary, Jesus' mother, was indeed part of this lineage that dates back to King David. Matthew does the same thing with his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus was human. He had flesh and bones just like you and me. And not, he wasn't just human physically, but also metaphysically. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet he did not sin. So he was even tempted as a human being. Let me, let me just cut to the chase here. Let me, let me just say it. Harvesticator. Jesus Christ was and is fully human. It's a good place for an amen. Are y'all with me? He is. But he's more than that, isn't he now? And Paul makes that clear. Verse 4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus was born of a woman, Mary, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's how he escaped the original sin that infects you and I. Jesus is fully man, yes, but he's also fully God. This is what's referred to by theologians as the hypostatic union. Jesus is God-man-ness. He is fully God, and he is fully man, and this is an essential part of the gospel. This is essential. Paul doesn't waste time in Romans 1 telling you that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, he proved his deity by rising from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why did Paul call himself a slave of Christ Jesus? Because he believes that Jesus Christ is his Lord. And he is. Did Jesus die? Did he really die? Yes. He really died. And then he was raised from the dead. There's this great story that's told about a man named Lepo during the French Revolution, Lepo hated Christianity. And so he decided to start his own religion and try to get people to follow him. And he was frustrated because this new religion that he started to compete with Christianity wasn't really taking off. And he had very few proselytes, especially when he compared it to Christianity. So he complained about this to his friend Talleyrand. 
Nobody, nobody's following my new religion. So Talleyrand gave him this suggestion. He said, my friend, to ensure success for your new religion, all you have to do is have yourself crucified on a cross and then rise from the dead. You do that, people will start following you. And let me just tell you, Harvest Decatur, always trust the person who was raised from the dead. All right? If you can do that, Jesus, you can be my Lord. I don't mind submitting my life to you because you conquered death. You know what Jesus says to Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our own resurrection. You want to be raised by the dead yourself? You better find somebody who was raised from the dead. And that is Jesus because he is fully God and fully man. Now I want to be careful here because just be clear, it wasn't that Jesus became the Son of God after his resurrection. No. Jesus is eternally the Son of God. It's the, it's the resurrection that proved, proved that he is the Son of God. In fact, you know, our youth, um, I was at Harvest Students last week, and Ryan's teaching the kids Colossians. Great stuff. Really excited to be there and to see what he's doing. So I applaud that and our uh, young people studying the book of Colossians. What does Colossians say about Jesus? Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the world. You know, he exists in eternity past. Jesus' sonship didn't begin at the resurrection, but it was confirmed at the resurrection. The power over death was, was conveyed upon him after the resurrection. F.F. Bruce says it this way. You can read this on the screen. Paul does not mean that Jesus became the Son of God by the resurrection, but that he who during his earthly ministry was the Son of God in weakness and lowliness, even going to the cross to die for our sins, became by the resurrection Son of God in power. This is our Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. I know I've quoted this before, but it's so good. I have to quote it again. It is good. Lewis said that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus did would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. We don't follow Jesus because he's a great teacher. He was a great teacher, but he's so much more than that. We don't follow Jesus because he just, you know, espouses these great principles for life and for our world. We follow Jesus because he is the Son of God and he conquered death and he rose from the dead. That's why we worship him. That's why we follow him. That's why we are slaves of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's term earlier. Y'all with me? If you don't know that about Jesus, that he is God and man, that he is both, then you don't know the gospel. If you don't believe the truth about who Jesus is, then you haven't believed the gospel. You're not saved. He is fully God. He is fully man. Paul starts his letter to Romans to clarify this point. Are you all ready for number three? <laughs> Here's number three. So the gospel was proclaimed by the prophets in the Old Testament. 
The gospel was realized in the Son who is fully God and fully man. Write this down too. The gospel was delivered by the apostles to the nations. Paul says in verse 5, he says, through whom? Everybody see that in your Bibles? Verse 5, through whom? Who's the whom? And verse 5, don't get lost in the sentence structure here. The whom in verse 5 is Jesus Christ our Lord at the end of verse 4. So let's read it that way. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Whew. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let me ask another question. Who's the you in verse 6? Who's the you? By the way, that's a plural you. That's y'all, okay? <laughs> Who's the y'all in verse 6? Well, let me put it this way. Y'all are the y'all, okay? You out there who belong to Jesus Christ. That's you. Y'all are in verse 6. I'm, I'm the y'all too in verse 6. Paul says it this way. Let me say it this way. You who are called, all of you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? You're not just a believer. You're a belonger. You belong to him. He owns you. Does that hurt your feelings? You don't like that? <laughs> Somebody likes that. <laughs> Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You don't belong to you anymore. You have been bought with a price. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to belong to Jesus Christ. I want to be belonged by him. Are you a doulos, Iesu Christu? Are you a slave of Christ Jesus? Are you a belonger? Let's back up here because before Paul mentions those who belong to Christ, he talks about those who have received grace and apostleship. Let me just explain this in verse 5. I don't think the we in verse 5 includes you, okay? So let me, let me clarify. Paul says, verse 5, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship. Who's the we there? This is debated, but... I think that's a reference to the apostles, to men like Paul, who I said earlier were authorized by Jesus to authoritatively launch the church, to instruct the church in right doctrine, to write the scriptures that are canonized. So we're talking about, we're talking about Paul, but we're also talking about Peter and Matthew and John and Paul and James, all of those who wrote. They have been given the grace to serve as apostles, okay? So through Jesus Christ our Lord, we, says Paul, the apostles, have received grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his Christ's name among the nations, among all 
the nations. Now let me draw a line from Paul all the way to you here in Decatur. Okay? Paul received grace to be an apostle, and his preaching of the gospel led to the obedience of faith among the nations. And that word nations there is the Greek word ethnos. And we derive our English word ethnicity from this Greek word ethnos, the nations, the peoples. And Paul uses that word when he's using it in Romans. He's speaking of the non-Jewish people throughout the world that the gospel is going to you know, proliferate to. All of those non-Jewish ethnos, all of those non-Jewish people groups around the world that need to hear the gospel. We got any non-Jewish people here at Harvest Decatur? A few of you? I'm pretty sure it's most of you. Paul was appointed as an apostle to get the gospel out to all of the ethnos in the world, to all of the people that are in Asia, and Africa, and Europe, and North America, and South America. People from all of those nations who have received the obedience of faith by the apostleship of Paul and his writings here in the scriptures. Even people as far away as the continent of North America, in the land of Illinois, in the land of Decatur, in this ethnos, so to speak. Did you know that you're in the Bible? You're in the Bible right here. This is where, this is what Paul was called to, to get the gospel out to the nations, to get the gospel out to people like us. Paul says, we the apostles have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all of the nations, not just Decatur either, but all of the places around the world, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now the immediate referent of verse 6 was probably the Christians in the church of Rome. So as we saw last week, you know, that's Paul's primary audience. He's writing to the Romans. But remember now, the Holy Spirit has inspired these scriptures, has inspired Paul to write this, not just for the church in Rome, but the church in Decatur as well, and for all the churches around the world that follow Christ. And all of us, you know, whether we're in Decatur, whether we're in Europe, Africa, Asia, we can all be saved by the gospel. And I don't know if you know how amazing that is, that all of us non-Jewish people out there can be grafted in as a child of Abraham, as Paul says later. You know, in a few weeks, I'm going to be going to uh, India, and I'm going to be ministering to some pastors and to some leaders in that country. I've never been to India. I, you know, I was telling Tom and Nikki Allworth this last week, I don't, I don't really know that much about India. Not that much more than you could read in a travel guide or whatever. And I, and I don't know the men that I'm going to be ministering to. Not yet, anyway. In about three weeks, I'm going to know them really well after spending a lot of time with them. But I, I don't know them yet. But let me make a predictive statement right now, okay? Let me predict something. I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit church, okay? <laughs> Y'all like that, huh? <laughs> Let me make a little prediction when I go to India. I predict that those Christian pastors in India, I predict that they're going to believe the same things that I believe about Jesus. 
Let me predict as well that they are, as the Bible says, made in the image of God, just like me. They are saved by the blood of Jesus, just like me. They are part of the ethnos that Paul writes about in verse five. They are one of those people groups that has been called to faith in Jesus Christ and even now belongs to Jesus Christ, just like I do. You know, if there's anything that I've learned in traveling over the years, you know, I haven't traveled as much as maybe some of y'all, but in traveling around North America, traveling around Europe, few times to Africa, few times to Asia, here's one thing that I've learned. As different as we are as human beings around the world, we are all the same. Men, women, and children made in the image of God who need the gospel and can be saved by the gospel. Are y'all with me? You want to know what the cure for racism is right there? The Bible is the cure for racism because it teaches this. And, you know, let's, let's, let's not overstate the case here. I mean, are, are Americans different than Indians? Yeah, they're different. Actually, Nikki Allworth, she came to me last week and she says, I'm worried about you, Pastor Tony. I don't think you're going to be able to handle the spicy food in North India. <laughs> so maybe you should work yourself up to that. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Are Indians different than Americans? Yes, they are. Are Europeans different than Africans? Yes, they are. But we were all made in the image of God, and we all can be saved by the blood of Jesus. We can all be saved by the gospel. That is the, that is the truth of the Bible. That is what, by the way, the church in Rome that Paul was writing to, this was a diverse place. People coming from all over the Roman Empire, all finding their unity in the blood of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus purchased for them. When we get to eternity someday, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be represented there, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Some of the best things I learned, I learned as a kid, singing songs like that. Christ died for the ethnos, for the nations. The gospel was delivered by the apostles, apostles like Paul, to the nations, and finally, number four, the gospel is received by the saints. Past, present, and future. Saints. Paul writes in verse seven, brings this long sentence to a close to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You know, I said already that the original recipient of this letter in this church was this church in Rome. But this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for other churches like ours as well, because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is scripture. And the apostle Peter actually knew this well because he told the church in his day, this is a fascinating passage. This is on the screen, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, says Peter of Paul's letters, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So the apostle Peter recognized Paul's words as holy scripture for the churches. And not only that, he said that Paul's letters were sometimes hard to understand. And you're like, yeah, yeah, sometimes they are. If you think that Paul's letters are difficult sometimes, you're in good company because Peter thought that too. And Peter affirms the fact, some people actually believe that what Peter is referencing there is the book of Romans. Maybe, maybe not. If you find this hard to understand, tracking with Paul's statements in verses one through seven, Peter did as well. And the apostle Peter calls what Paul writes scripture. So let's go back to verse seven here and let's tidy up this, this scripture to all those who are in Rome, as well as to those who are in Decatur, who are being edified by this letter, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Notice those two things in verse seven. Loved by God, called to be saints. Who are the saints? What are we talking about here? Are these the New Orleans saints? Are we, is this football? Football season? Are we talking about saints in the Catholic Church? St. Teresa, St. Mary, St. Patrick, St. Francis of Assisi. Are we now? Are those the saints? Saints, by the way, that word that means, it's translated saints in your Bibles, it's the word hagias in Greek, and it means holy one or holy ones if you want to pluralize it. It's essentially the same that of, of those who were loved by God. If you're loved by God, embrace the gospel, then you are the saints. You are holy ones. Do you think of yourself that way? You might say, saint? No, I'm not a saint, Pastor Tony. I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes. Yes, you are. But the, in the eyes of the Lord, you are saved by the blood of Jesus and Christ's righteousness covers you. So you are indeed a saint. Everybody with me? You are not holy, unholy anymore if you believe in Jesus. You are wholly made holy by the blood of Jesus. And you can call yourself a saint. You can consider yourself a, a saint as long as you realize that you're not made holy by your works or by anything you've done. You're made holy by Jesus. Paul references how we're made holy at the end of verse 7. It says, to all of you who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we made saints? We're made saints by God's grace. He makes you holy by his grace, the grace of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we call those who by grace have received new life in Jesus Christ? We call those, what, what do we call those who believe the gospel? We call them saints, holy ones, beloved by God. We call them believers. We call them servants, slaves even. We call them disciples. We call them belongers. You're not just a believer, you're a belonger. You belong to Christ Jesus. Are you a belonger? Do you belong to him? 
There's another term that we use for those who believe the gospel. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing in just a few seconds. I'm almost done, but I want to finish with this. There's another term that we use for those who believe the gospel. It's a great term, and I hope you understand this term. It's a term that was first coined in the city of Antioch when Paul went there nearly 2,000 years ago. It's a term called Christian. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, 26 says this, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, Christians. Why are we called Christians? Why aren't we called Paulites or Peterites? You know, I'm the pastor of this church. Why aren't you called Tony Caffians? Why aren't you called George Benetarians? And with Harvest students, why aren't they called Ryan Jacksonians? Why Christians? Why Christians? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? You go to, go to somebody and say, hey, are you a Christian? You're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. You're like, oh, okay, well, you know, tell me about that. How do you know that after you die, you're going to enter into eternity with the Lord? And they say, well, you know, I'm a good person. You know, I, I try not to lie too much. I try not to cheat on my taxes. I try not to cheat on my wife. You know, and I really try to do good things for people in this world. And is that a Christian? Are they putting their faith in Christ, belonging to Christ? That's not a Christian. They're putting faith in what? Themselves, in their own works, and what they've done. It's actually a perverse form of egoism and narcissism to think that I can save myself, that I'm going to lead myself to the presence of the Lord. And every religion in the world feeds on that egoism by telling people, you can be good enough to earn your way to salvation. You can be good enough if you just do X, Y, and Z. Christianity is not like that. We do not embrace ourselves. We do not put faith in ourselves in order to be saved. We put our faith in Christ. We are christ ends. Are you now, church? We are Christians. And it's in Christ alone that we put our faith. Amen, church? It's in Christ alone that we put our faith.